Hello and welcome to The Intersection of Things, a podcast about technology and how it's changing our lives from an intersectional feminist perspective. I am one half of the pod, Marianne And I'm the other half, Ruth. Hi, Ruth. Hey, evening or morning. We're broadcasting live, well, recording live from two different places in the planet, thanks to the magic of the internet. Uh, so, speaking of, Ruth, what are we talking about this week? This one's on collectivism. Ooh, collectivism. Okay, that's a contentious term. I've heard it a lot. Oh, all of these young people, these millennials, armchair activism. What is collectivism, Ruth? Yeah, collectivism is the term that a lot of people use to describe online or digital activism. And it's definitely been used to kind of diminish it and dismiss it as less effective or less real than physical offline activism that involves protests or stunts or community organizing and all of those other all of those other things. But it's really interesting to talk about it right now because clicktivism is also remote activism. It's a lot of what is possible right now, although of course we've seen people on the streets regardless of pandemic. Um, mm. But it feels particularly appropriate because I think a lot of people are stepping into it for the first time or more politically engaged right now and looking at a lot of the things that are out there around signing petitions, um, getting involved with donating and supporting causes. So it seems like a good time to talk about this. Right. So just to clarify, like, the type of collectivism we're talking about is exactly what you just mentioned about the... Um, yeah, sign this petition to demand whatever entity stops doing terrible things or donate to, I don't know, pay like legal funds, something for someone. Hashtag activism too, like when people, I don't know, maybe I don't know, we're going to discuss the black squares of like Black Lives Matter Tuesday that also got a lot of like conversation going around that. And we're kind of putting this, this is like a compliment, but not, not in opposition, but a compliment to as you mentioned, the marches that have been happening on the street, like the people taking um, the roads and uh, other forms of actually more, not actually, other forms of more uh, presential, I guess, like physical presence of activism. So the first question that always comes to people's minds, like, are petitions even effective? Like when someone says, sign this to like, I don't know, demand Walmart stops, I don't know, abusing their employees by not giving them a living wage. Is signing a petition, this 10 second thing that takes you uh, to fill in some form and click sign, does it actually do anything? Well, as with, as with all things, I'm gonna say sometimes, and it depends on the context. But it's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> um, Who knew? I mean, I think the thing is that petitions can be effective. And the question is, is it the right tool for the job? Because there are certain things where petitions are extremely effective when they're targeted at one person, um, when they're like community focused. So if you're trying to focus something in your local area that's improving like road safety, for nearby a school and you're targeting a local politician, those are often like at the peak of effective because they're signed mm -hmm. by people who influence on that politician. They have someone who's very clearly the target and they can often be like really easy to reach that person. So mm -hmm. that's often the key thing is, is that petition actually going to be seen by the target of the petition? Right. So that can be really effective. And same with corporations being the target they can be pretty effective because it's not just about the petition, it's about 
bad publicity and the press. Right. So those can be pretty good. But then ones that are targeted like bigger and like uh, the president or the prime minister, Mm -hmm. then it's like a little bit more questionable that that person is actually going to see it. Right. And then that's where it gets to this whole interesting thing about, is it really about the petition itself? Because sometimes a petition looks like it's a sign this to ask the person to do this. Right. But it's more like the petition is a framework for something else. And the real goal is still attention. Right. Side note on, on, on this whole conversation, like we're talking from a very like UK, US, Canada perspective. Like I am aware that even the idea, I don't know now, but even the idea in some countries of like gathering signatures to demand your representative do something, like some places, depending on their political context, are going to laugh at you showing up with a 100,000 signatures, right? It's going to be dismissed as like, you're just making up things. Like there is not a culture of believing uh, this type of civic engagement. So this is like a little side note of like, we're talking from from a very like UK, US, uh, Canada perspective. I'm not even sure like, is, is is that also a thing in the rest of Europe? Like, um, I was gonna say, I think even in the European perspective, some of the like risks around petition signing, around data gathering, like if you're signing your name onto something and agreeing that that is your stance, then that still involves a risk and you should still think carefully about who's posted it and where it is and whether you would trust that organization or entity with your data and with having your opinions tied onto that. Right. So it seems that then there's this complicated, I was like, does it work? Well, it depends. The political culture of uh, where you're having this petition happen. Second, what kind of mechanism are you kind of uh, banking on for it to work? Is it like a more make noise and make people aware that this is going on, regardless of whether or not the prime minister sees it, versus actual like tell your local city council to like put zebra stripes on this street so there's different ways in which like quote unquote working these kind of petitions can be measured uh for and then you just mentioned something very important the risks because we're talking about political context as well i mean one of the main things culturally sometimes that some people get is like you do not uh add your name to a list because then you make yourself a vulnerable target yeah if you if you say like so and so who lives at this address supports i don't know black lives matter then it's a very easy way to identify and collect like you're literally creating lists of people who agree on something um so let's talk a little bit about that because it's also who is running these petitions right yeah and i think that that's one of the other things to to weigh up when you're signing petitions and i think there are these sites like Avaz and change.org and many of them let people just create petitions on those sites and I sometimes feel like there is not always the legitimacy that comes with that kind of thing like sometimes it can be great because it does put that kind of power back in people's hands and say I want to respond to an issue and create something now but you also have to be aware that anyone can be doing that and therefore looking at that question of if they're taking up a petition on behalf of someone else do they really know that person? Is there the sense of authority? Do they have 
the references have have they got any proof that they're in contact with that person because i see a lot of these around like immigration protecting people from being deported or stopping um, deportation flights happening which i think are really important and have that personal aspect but i also think that, that sometimes it's just like a little bit questionable whether where you're seeing that journey you know like how has that story come about and that I just always think we should take like a little bit of extra time because what's really sad is they can also turn into scams and right. be using kind of popular public stories as a way to generate money and use that moment of empathy to say we're raising funds for this person but are they you know take that right. little bit of extra time to see if you can trace back what that connection is yeah and it's it's interesting just to ask the question of like who is putting this together it's so it's not only about the petition but also who is overseeing your data generally sometimes i'm like if it's an organization and you can check on the organization i think it's i don't want to say it's better because again the power of the individual i hate that power of the individual but you know it's kind of nice that someone can just set up something and start a little bit of activism on their own um but i think there is also the benefit of like it's different if the aclu for example is running something at least quote unquote at least you know there is like an email address where you can write after one it's like hey aclu what happened to this right and kind of demand some sort of accountability from from the people collecting this data uh, asking for donations and claiming to uh, have a plan because that's sometimes what organizations do they they say not only sign but this is why the signature is important the very <laughs> very uh in technical terms the, the theory of change as they call it so yeah there's this element of like sometimes when it's a registered uh, organization with like some maybe sometimes even registered lobbyists you can you have the right and i encourage you to to ask any follow-ups and any yeah any changes that had happened on that petition yeah and likewise if you were starting a petition you should also always explain what you're going to do with it. You know, I think that transparency is those two things that I think are really key when people create one is your legitimacy and authority, like show your learning, show your sources, show your connection, and also tell what you're going to do. You know, that the thing of the theory of change is how this thing, the petition, is going to lead to the change like that you've promised. And so you need to just spell it out. If this person sees these numbers, we believe this is going to happen. And it just mm -hmm. needs to be really clear. That being said, I still think that what is interesting about petitions is how often they can be effective tools for change without, outside of that articulated theory of change, which is the things like a journalist sees it and writes about it, and right. then the prime minister sees it. Or someone else who's working on that issue sees it and says hey i'm over here doing something really similar we should connect and it can also be a way of movement building and so it's it's a signal and yeah. what that signal goes out and it can be picked up and then built on in ways that sometimes are strategically planned for and sometimes are completely unexpected so tell me about this signal thing because it's a it's also another term that uh yeah Tell me, yeah. what, what is a signal? Because it's not just like a bad signal. <laughs> you know, I realized I was just kind of naturally going into this um, in my own head. Um, but I am incredibly influenced by Zainab Tefeci, um, who we've mentioned so many times on the pod. And her brilliant book, Twitter and Tear Gas, also a very frequent point of reference. Mm -hmm. um, 
But yeah, she has this book, uh, Twitrintigas, uh, subtitle The Fragility of Networked Protest. And one of the things that she talks a lot in there about online protest is this concept of signals and capacities and that all of these different kinds of actions, petitions, but also physical actions like protests are not just the thing in and of itself. They're a kind of signal of your capacity to do something more. And she says there are these three types of capacity. So one is narrative capacity, which is you have an ability to change the story or change the dominant narrative. And right, to, f- to frame reality the way it's, you know, from your perspective, which is usually, um, yep. you know, like not the dominant or normative perspective. And like great example of that is Black Lives Matter, which mm-hmm. has, you know, that in and of itself is a narrative and it's been a powerful one. Yeah. Um, and then like number two is disruptive capacity. So that's doing things like blockades or stunts or taking people's websites down um and like just messing with the normal thing and right. that annoys people in power and they don't want you to do any more of it right so for example like here in canada um just before the pandemic started uh we had um the land defenders indigenous people protesting pipelines just being you know ripped through their land and one of the ways they did it was uh by blocking uh railways and the railway i mean probably it's very important everywhere but canada's a pretty big country so that was a big uh signal of of uh, disruptive capacity um and if we were going to do this on on the online uh aspect remember was it sopa pipa i think mm-hmm. the um in in the in the united states this legislation that was going to move towards censoring the the internet and literally people just sometimes took sites down uh, just by redirecting. It's not quite the DDoS, the distributed denial of service attack, DDoS. How do you call it? Anyways, um, it's not quite that, but like people can also overwhelm services as part of protests. Um, So that's another form of disruptive capacity that does not include um, the streets directly. And what's the third one? And the third one is electoral capacity. Um, So this is, we could change who is in power or what legislative bills are put on the table. Like, we have the ability to change the structures. Right. And they're not mutually exclusive, right? Like, the the thing that comes to mind is uh, not that long ago, uh, and again, this is is just from what I read, but like, K-pop fans uh, that organize through TikTok apparently bought or like sign up for most of uh, the free tickets at a rally by Trump and uh, and then nobody showed up and this was I don't know like a, a blatant display not only of the disruptive capacity of nobody's gonna come to your party but also like a little bit of a display of uh, electoral power because if you can do that then what else can you do but it's interesting now we can just kind of jump from there to like people quote unquote in the progressive spectrum are not the only ones using these tactics um these tactics are fragile um can be undermined and co-opted by pretty much anyone right the dna of them does not only make them useful for quote unquote good things so can we talk a little bit about that yeah and i think that that's the thing is often just to kind of like frame that a little bit 
people on the left think that, or used to think, I, I guess it's changing somewhat, that they own digital innovation and mm. coming up with new ways of doing online protest and kind of combining the online offline and having all of that protest innovation. But it's not really true. And it's something that terrifyingly like the far right are getting good at and all of the tactics that we can do they can do too like there isn't really just a limit so even things like disruption and protests like they can go out on the streets too um and they do and they do obviously i think what's interesting around that story is i remember going to a conference for charity workers after the obama election and everyone was talking about targeted ads and how inventive and brilliant Obama was in using those things. Mm. And further down the line, obviously, the far right everywhere has been using targeted ads and focused ads. And things where people have said, oh, it's really cool to like, you know, using memes or, you know, using educational technology telling stories on Instagram slideshows, all of those things the same people are doing. All of these things can be really innovative and interesting. But the moment we come up with something smart and cool, the same people will see it and then they will copy it and twist it. It's the conundrum of the tool, right? Is uh, once you find a way to leverage power, the competing interests will be there. Um, and sadly, the the normative ones or the ones that currently hold more power then will have a lot more capacity to use the same tool just because, again, they have more power currently. So uh, it's one of those, like, you can find the solution, but be aware that um, the intent of that solution does not live with the tool. It lives with the people who use the tool. So that's just a thing, a thing to think about and know. And... Uh, there are also, I mean, so we've talked about petitions and donations. And uh, note, we shall not forget at the end of this episode to give a little bit of like a couple tips of like, beware of this, beware of that, if you want. But like, there's also um, in the narrative aspect of it, there's also um, the whole hashtag activism, uh, Instagram activism. I don't know, people would be very familiar nowadays with the slideshow activism. Uh, what is slideshow activism, Ruth? Yeah, I think we have to give... I want to give a shout-out first before talking about this um, mm -hmm. to the journalist uh, Terry Nguyen. I think that's how you say your name. Apologies if not. Um, in Vox, who's written a really interesting piece about something that seems to have emerged literally in the last few months. And I don't know about you, but it is everywhere on my Instagram, which is mm -hmm. this slideshow educational squares. Um, there's things like how to be a good ally, how to speak up when you see a racist incident happening, or right. sometimes, you know, a short history of Lebanon, um, you know, what's going on in Poland and what's the political context. All of these things in five slides, in millennial pink, in beautiful fonts, with bubble writing, with flowers around yeah, flat them. design like design for instagram right yes yeah so she wrote a really interesting piece about how all of that has come up and how it's like tapping into the exact same aesthetics as brands as marketing posts like literally mm -hmm. looking at those things like going what is getting seen 
and then using that exact same stuff to be spotted by the algorithm and to also partly the algorithm but also partly people of what is what is it we're comfortable looking at what is it we're expecting to see on this platform so it comes in in this kind of familiar calm way and then you know punches you in the face with facts hopefully but it also lacks some of these other key things that we would want to see like detail context and specifically one thing that really pisses me off about instagram which is links because instagram doesn't let you link to anything and it's so hard Mm -hmm. to find out where the sources are from anything and people say like link in bio when there's like one link if you're lucky you can't click through on anything so there's not sources and there's also not credit a lot of the time Like, people will be sharing things without necessarily putting the credit back to the first people who said it. Like, especially when there are a lot of really brilliant black feminists who originate in a lot of these thoughts and are creating some of these slideshows, but they get shared around and then the credit gets lost. And that pisses me off, you know. Right. Yeah, it's it's kind of like an interesting way to see how even when a platform like Instagram is literally designed to keep you trapped in the platform, uh, people get creative. I don't like the word creative. People, yeah, but people get creative with ways of sharing information. The linking in bio is one thing. The, you know, then sometimes that link literally takes you to a different site that it's almost like a replica of the Instagram post that now you can actually click through. Um, yeah, Autostraddle has that, which I find really smart. But at like the same tree or something. Yeah, like, and then you see the same things on the website and you click through. It annoys me that people have to go to such lengths when the internet is made yeah. of links. It's weird, and it kind of gives you a little bit of a glimpse into where the internet. Not, I don't want to be all dystopian, but where the internet is going, right? Like, who who would have thought twenty years ago? Maybe a lot of people. I don't know. But like links would just disappear at some point. And now we're seeing more and more platforms that make it hard, if not impossible, to link out. And we can get philosophical about about that, right? Like the controlling of who you can whose information you can source and, and talk to and, and but I mean you know Shout out to Hussein Derek Shan who wrote a brilliant piece, The Web We Have to Save, that is all about the loss of hyperlinks. We'll link to that in the the footnotes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, so again, all of this just kind of becomes uh, about, quote unquote, gaming the algorithm, trying to understand the way the tools work in order to subvert them, uh, to either get information out, um, increase awareness, change narrative, put pressure, increase numbers. And I guess what we're saying with all of this is that just because it's online doesn't mean it doesn't work. I think we have to rethink this idea that clicktivism, as much of a dismissive term uh, might sound, actually is an essential component of today's protests, uh, today's uh, civic engagement, I guess. And as such, it just needs to be seen and... uh, I don't know, thought about with the same, you know, critical lens than any other type of protest. You will have your online agitators. You would have your infiltrators. You'll have people who just want the list. You'll have people who dismiss the list. There was a famous case in the U.S. when they were fighting for net neutrality where the FCC, uh, what is it, the Federal Communications Commission mm-hmm. in, the, in the U.S., who was overseeing the process, actually fed, because they had, like, the governments themselves also have online consultations. Uh, they have it in, in the US, they have it in Canada, 
I'm assuming in the UK as well. And um, so basically the, the, the state is already using online platform, like the online as a platform for like civic feedback, right? Uh, so what happened with the FCC was that they actually fed fake uh, records, fake names, like people who were deceased were showing up as having signed in favor of like bringing down net neutrality. And that was a very interesting tactic, again, because by doing that, then there was the, the seed was planted that all of these other petitions might just be bots as well. They're just not noticed because they're for progressive causes, right? But listener, let me just point you to like the ingenious evil that's in planting the seed of doubt, like that has been in the playbook forever like you don't have to plant an ideology you just have to plant the doubt that makes the opponent's ideology seem like it might be a lie so this so these tactics again are being used and uh and it's important to be aware of them yeah it still blows my mind that that happened like absolutely but the same thing has happened on petition that i was working on what the um european commission and we had a petition with like tens of thousands of signatures and the European Commission tried to claim that they weren't real and they would only really count as one person because it was one organization. And then right. tried to claim that the organization is the only voice, you know. And I think what is actually interesting about that is generally this idea that only institutions matter, like only NGOs and organizations matter. And so... Mm they're kind of undermining the idea that people being involved in online activism matters. Like, they're only interested in talking to an institution. Like, nothing else matters. So the idea of dismissing online activism is definitely in the interests of people who have power. And I absolutely do think that it's effective. So when people say it's not effective, like, it's just, it's just not true. But it is also, as you said, it's open to disruption and manipulation just as much as anything else yeah i think just so much of what online activism is about now it's about trying to make noise to cut through everything and a lot of the time it isn't just about yeah it's not about like what you say or who says it or any of that it's just trying to be seen in a big sea of noise like that's what a hashtag can help people do is like connect something across different platforms and that's what the Instagram slideshow aesthetics is it's like saying how can we be seen in all of this right and you could say in a way activism has always been about making noise and being seen but now it's about being seen by computer algorithms as much as being seen by media or by other people out on the street and it's like everyone's kind of playing a game with the computers and with marketing departments rather than just with institutions there's this whole other layer that's going on in the activism like a different target that isn't your politician it isn't your ceo it's a mathematical system designed by corporate marketing needs well which also begs the question like what does it mean when we need things to quote unquote keep on trending to be relevant and we've seen it like uh, I'm pretty sure you've encountered the the posts of like just because Black Lives Matter is not trending anymore doesn't mean that the issues aren't there, and um, and that's become 
it's become a, a thing that keeps being shared. The, the interesting part of this is just the question that it puts forward, which is like, what does it mean to need the, the, the things trend for them to be noticed, for them to be relevant? Uh, because, well, first thing is, as we've mentioned in, in other episodes, you can't always be in the triggered state. It's, it's um, usually when activism, and we talked about this in the outrage episode, it has parts and components. Obviously, you bring uh, attention to an issue, uh, more often than not devastating issues. So you kind of bring people's alertness up. Um, and then, as we just talked about, the theory of change is like provides a solution. And if this also sounds a little bit like uh, a system that like capitalism co-ops, like pointing out a problem, selling you a solution, this uh, it's not the same, but shares the 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 mechanism of bringing the spotlight into a problem, sharing with you this is what we're gonna do about it, which is where the organizing comes in, and then the third one is like, and this is how we keep it going, and I think uh, gaming the algorithm or like beating the algorithm, not even gaming it, cause you're actually playing within the rules, kind of brings awareness, but when is the what is the step two, as we said in the previous step episode, right? What is what's next? How do you keep on organizing? Like you, I have your attention now. What? Um, so yeah, what is what is step two? I don't know. We live in the attention economy after all, so it's not that reminding people that things are still happening is bad. Again, it's more like the question of we need to remind people all the time because the competing attention grabbers are are out. So. Yeah, because I think that everything that comes next is the stuff of movement building. It is the stuff of connect with the local organizations and having those conversations with your friends and all those other key asks that are about changing your life and standing up to racism, following on and like getting engaged in those organizations and continuing to read and educate. Um, and I think that's the thing that people do say about petitions that has some validity, which is that it's click and then feel like you're done. I think that's the heart of what can be harmful about clicktivism is that you think signing a petition is enough and then you're done and you move on. And it's not that signing a petition is meaningless, but it's that signing a petition is not the end of all that is needed from you in order to make positive social change. Well, and, and it also reminds me of tangentially, remember when like changing your profile picture on Facebook was a, a form of activism or changing your Twitter name was a... And I think f from memory, this is when, at least in my world, the, ter the term clicktivism uh, got introduced because people were like, what are you accomplishing with changing your Facebook picture to blue, you know, or I black? Mean, my absolute least favorite thing was this weird... I have no idea where this even came from thing on Facebook where people posted the color of the bra they were wearing. It was just like write a color. And apparently this is for cancer awareness. And I asked a friend be like, what, how is this to do with cancer awareness? And just got a, well, everything helps. And I'm like, but you're not even saying anything about cancer. Like that kind of stuff of just, just do this thing. And, and like, it has some meaning, you know, like everyone's, changing their profile picture to have like a picture of a star and then that will tell us something about the world no 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 that stuff's just bullshit guys <laughs> yeah or um not not quite the same but like the aas uh, no what is it that the bucket challenge oh yeah um als i think it was als als yeah i get my my letters confused people uh yeah 
ALS, the bucket challenge, which apparently did raise quite a bit of money. Um, but it was an interesting way of making a thing trend. I mean, just I mean, there hats is off, a, I guess, to people whoever came up with it. There is a really interesting story about that, which is that the summer that everyone was doing the ice bucket challenge was the same summer that Black Lives Matter was really like starting off because that was the summer of Ferguson. Right. And what happened was Ice Bucket Challenge was trending on Facebook and Black Lives Matter was on Twitter. Hmm. And that was because Facebook at the time only had like buttons to interact with things. And nobody likes Mm. police beating people up, police shooting people, putting snipers on the street. And nobody likes any of that. People like a fun Facebook game. Right. And so people were interacting with it, but it wasn't actually like going up in the trending stories. It wasn't being shown in people's feeds. Um, And this is like literally another thing that Zainab Tefetri had a huge influence on and wrote and researched about. And as a result of Ferguson and Black Lives Matter, the weirdest thing of his social impact, which is that Facebook introduced other emojis. And like other emojis doesn't seem like a political thing, but actually it changed a lot and it changed how people were able to share more political stories because people react with rage or cry symbols. But that then means that they get interactions and Facebook only values things that get interactions. Right. So not just positive stories can get seen by people who only really get their news on Facebook. When you only have a like button, it's literally reconfiguring the mechanism of feedback uh, that you give people, right? If you can only say yes, or if you can only express yourself if you like something, but not if you dislike something. Like, what does it say about dissent? What does it say about our capacity to deal with, or not to deal with, but just to entertain uh things that are uncomfortable but also what is the ultimate uh, goal of the platform the platform was there to make people feel good and get the good feels and which is not the same thing (laughs) um and to have the instant gratification so it's it's just fascinating to to see that through that lens so yeah we've talked a lot about you know hashtag activism and instagram are there any other ways in which the digital comes into into yeah i guess activism i don't know i don't have another word right now for it is it only petitions and hashtags and donations no absolutely not i think there are a million different ways and we definitely cannot cover them all in one podcast episode i imagine that there are entire podcast series donated to this kind of topic um you know there's the kind of the hacker side of it there's stuff Mm -hmm. that is as we were talking about taking down websites the more disruptive side of things or creating tools themselves right um in response to shout out to uh open privacy yeah because i was thinking there's a lot that's to do with data activism that's around mapping for instance i think like mapping as a tool of activism is really really interesting and like it's a vast topic so there's stuff like mapping when kettling is taking place at a protest um but there's also stuff like using maps to document queer friendly spaces or you know the the queering the map project where people put uh like their queer stories on a map and kind of like change how you think about a place and the world um and there's data activism that's about 
looking at the information and making it transparent and public that otherwise wouldn't be that's all about you know exposing things that's like that's the other side of the hacking thing as well as like leaking documents but also for instance a lot of stuff that's been going on there's an organization called data for black lives and they're about making sure that the COVID-19 amongst amongst other things but making sure COVID-19 race data is available and so they can show how the infection rates and race are working together and how the like racial inequality and health inequality are very much side by side and that racial and social inequality are impacting on COVID and not letting that be something that's hidden. I mean, in the UK, we had a report that was supposed to come out about that and then the government didn't want to release it because it might cause social disruption because Hmm. apparently... If they tell us how racist everything is, it will upset people. Rather than the actual racism being upsetting. Yeah, I was going to say, and what's worse than racism? Upsetting the racists. Because yeah. then they might think they're racist or realize. And then that's bad. What about working on fixing things? Hmm. Yeah, it's a bleak uh, panorama sometimes when you look at that. Um, there's also interesting um, stunt, if we can call it. Like there was um, this person who it was kind of like a performance art piece that happened, where what was his name? Simon Wecker, the wagon, the wagon full of smartphones guy. That's yeah, that's exactly. So someone basically put a bunch of phones in a wagon and walked around streets, and smartphones were tracking location through uh, Google Maps. So basically, Google was like oh there's a lot of traffic like a lot of traffic in i don't know wagon avenue and uh and it turned out it was just this guy with 200 or i don't know how many uh smartphones walking around kind of being like see what i can do it was an interesting i I loved it it was just so playful and also a a really interesting intervention on how actually how easy it is sometimes to game the algorithm i guess yeah and i think there are loads of examples where people have done things like that you know we've talked about it before but with like rideshare apps and delivery drivers and things like that like delivery drivers when they were striking i hope i get the story right they did a thing of like ordering food to one particular location all at once so that then they could meet in that location to organize a union so it's like using the food app to send the drivers somewhere in order to do political organizing wow yeah and and i don't know now but at some point i think um was it uber Uh, i think it was uber um who had in its contract uh not in these terms basically that that workers could not organize it was not spelled out in that way but it was more around uh, you because you're a contractor you're not allowed to share uh, company data including how much you make um, and the rates and all of those things which are in many ways essential whenever you're organizing uh, for fair wages and arguing differential treatment so it's it's interesting how like then this other tactic Uh, of like bringing a lot of people to one place kind of subverted that because you cannot just prohibit people from talking on the sidewalk i mean who knows but it it was it was just fascinating oh you're reminding me i saw something recently i think it was i'm trying to remember what industry it was for but it was around freelance workers being using an online platform basically to compare wages for similar jobs and check that they were being Mm -hmm. paid the same by different companies to see if they were being treated unfairly And I think that's another interesting thing that you can 
you can do with this kind of stuff is it is that connection of finding people somewhere else and sharing that data and then saying what can we do with this what can we show about this the kind of data that is normally only held by the company and then you're discouraged from sharing your wages or talking about how much you're paid you can just like it was i'm gonna try and find it for the footnotes because it was really interesting and it was just a thing about posting up like jobs you've done, where and how much you got paid for it. Wow. Yeah. So as we see, there's a bunch of ways in which people use uh, online tools, the online, the internet. And I know like probably this recording in like 10, 20 years, as time in, in a week, we'll already be sounding old because we keep on making reference to this uh, dichotomy of like online versus uh, in person. But I think it's still a, an issue that you're at that the protest filming the police. You know, you're doing both at the same time, all the time. Yeah, it's no longer. I don't know if it ever was possible to separate those things. Um, but it's interesting just to see them in this in this lens. Um, also, shout out to my fridge who decided just to kick in because I guess the conversation is so hot that needs to down i don't know the perks of recording from the attic so i don't know is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to uh talk about talking of shout outs i want to give a shout out to my yep. friend becca bunce who's written a really good piece that's about how talking about collectivism can also undermine disability activism and can often privilege this idea that being on the streets and being able to go out somewhere is more you know, authentic or powerful than digital activism. And she raises a lot of really good points about that kind of false dichotomy, but also like undermining disability activists and can also link to that in the footnotes. Absolutely. And also reminds me of uh, this comic book of uh, who is able to go out and protest, who is safe enough to do so. And um, be it just to show up at a, at a protest or even, you know, I don't want to get into rock stars, but like, oh, go out and like get arrested. Um, <laughs> but bringing this comic bit was about bringing awareness of like, there is some sort of um, privilege in, in, in uh, being able to show yourself and, um, and protest openly. And also there are so many other ways, including online activism, in which you can be involved um, and that won't put you at a disproportionate risk um, and you can still help. Yeah. Yeah. Or participate, rather, not help, participate. And I think it's a thing we've talked about before, like, if someone asks you, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to risk your life. Like, that isn't the only option, that isn't the only way. Um, there's there's a lot of other things you can do that are positive and powerful um and all of those things as we talked about have had impact yeah so i don't know get cre get creative people take care of yourselves and uh and know that just because you are behind a screen or keyboard or whatever you are still pretty much able to participate in molding the world around you and uh and making community with people who might not be in our physical presence even even more so now um during 2020 august but you know it's it's still possible and this is 
as always, a little bit of a, a, a show of gratitude like for, for the people behind this. So, it sounds like we've reached the end of this amazing episode. Ruth, is there anything that you would like to take with you? Um, oh, and actually, no. Before we do that, I said uh, in the beginning, a few tips. So, some of the things we have here, notes, is like, change.org. In, in general, do not donate to change.org. Is that... Is that still uh, a thing? Basically, after you sign a petition on Change.org, it will ask you to chip in to support the campaign. Donating does not necessarily give any money to the campaign that you just signed. It gives money to Change.org, which is a business, not a charity, and that will continue its stuff. You might think it's good stuff, but you're not supporting that specific cause. If you want to support a specific issue, it is generally better to then go and find that issue. Do they have a separate bail fund? Do they have an NGO? Do they have a PayPal? You know, go and find what it is. If you want to support them, please do. But supporting change.org is not supporting your cause. Right. At least as of recording and etc. Um, there's also the whole thing, I mean, I do work in the space, so sometimes people are like, how come your petitions are asking for a bunch of data? Um, sometimes the way tools are designed are, for example, they use your postal code in order to deliver the message to your local representative um, or like to your member of parliament or the one that's relevant to where you live. One thing that, don't tell anyone, but <laughs> that sometimes we say to people is like, just use the nearest public building and use that zip code if you are more comfortable. Um, just because, I mean, we do understand that it's a lot of personal information um, and not everybody has the privilege to just sign with with uh, their address. So just think of ways in which you can still participate and take care of yourself at the same time. And yeah, use the nearest public building and uh, you should be good to go. That's good advice. Think about what you give. Yep, you know general tips feel free to follow up with the organizations uh from the inside i can tell you that a lot of them actually like to hear from people and see that there's energy and it's uh, there's a lot of engagement around an, an issue it actually by you asking it's literally just signals that people care and are willing to to uh, take that extra step and at the same time feel free to ask the people that you uh, emailed hey member of parliament did you receive this because like you better not be dismissing things so yeah just be curious i guess yeah and you might hear this all the time from organizations but when you do something that is like write a letter to your mp writing your own personal message is more powerful they do dismiss things that look like form letters and really specifically, if the thing is a form and it tells you what the subject line of the email is, change the subject line. Like actually that is so powerful because they will just block like select and delete things that all have the same subject line. Politicians will be like, oh, 40 emails about this shit, I don't care. But if you give each one a different subject line, they will then have to check and look in. So like, Good subject lines in your emails to politicians matter. And on that same note, uh, remember that every time that you write in these petitions, you basically uh, know that you're writing on a postcard. The information is public, so be careful when you're writing something very personal. I mean, it's not always public, but, you know, it's not encrypted, blah, 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 blah. Um, at least, like, if we're delivering to 
representatives, we have no control or say in how that information is handled on their end. So just be aware of that. Be, um, again, you're writing on a postcard and uh, take that into account. Yeah. Public record. All right. So uh, unless there's anything else, <laughs> we let's just... Is there anything you're taking with you, Ruth? I thought that was really interesting to kind of try and go back over digital activism because the more we talked about it the more I was like remembering other stuff and thinking of other examples and remembering a lot of things that I've been so inspired and impressed by in the past you know thinking about all of those kind of mapping exercises and even this Instagram thing there's part of me that thinks it's sad that political messages have to be tied up into the same aesthetics that Nike use for their adverts. But I also feel impressed, I think, with the way that people continue to find new ways to politicize spaces and find ways to make sure the message gets heard. So I, yeah, I look at that with this dual sense of there's a playfulness about it and a strategic thinking at the same time as that like yes we're all playing into the capitalist framework yes we're all trying to like fight for attention in this attention economy but i kind of enjoy it at the same time and enjoy watching people continue to sort of dance around these corporations like instagram doesn't want you to make their space about black lives matter they want you to post about products right so you are still saying fuck you even whilst it's done in their aesthetics it's it's a yeah. fun kind of finger up and I like ultimately I think ultimately I fall on the side if I like it what about you I always I'm just like I want to take away everything I really like the thing that you added at the end about thinking about these forms of activism through the disability lens and which then also led to the privileged lens and um and kind of just to take a step back and re-question even the framework of, of is digital better or worse than physical like even that is just a binary that it's setting us up to fail just by existing so disability is, is sometimes a thing that gets forgotten in the intersectional talk not all the time obviously but um, it's one of the privileges that uh, shine through and especially in like the take to the streets well not everybody can and also I mean just a different places uh, in life that people are and I love how there are just many ways to be involved in shaping the world around you and this is just one of the very many um, and it's only possible because a lot of people work towards this, listen to this, not this podcast, but listen to the messages that are going through um, the online platforms. And there is something to be said for recognizing that. And I'm taking the reminder to look through that lens a, a lot more and um, reminding people again to like take that second step, learn, organize and share. Share what you learn. Um, is there anything else? No, I think that's a good point to end on. Sweet. If people want to read about the things that we've been talking about, where can they find the footnotes? On our website, www.theintersectionofthings.com. Perfect. If they want to tweet at us, they can do so at Things Intersect. Editing, writing, recording, and everything. This podcast is done by the both of us. Uh, music is by David Mark Hucklesby. And Ruth, if you want to be found, where can they find you? Um, I am at Nessient on Twitter, N-E-S-I-E-N-T. Uh, and for me, just tweet at the podcast. Um, if you can, please leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. And if not, then just listen and, and share this with a friend that you might think might like this. 
Shout out to everyone who has been giving us awesome words of encouragement, reviews, and discussing these uh, episodes outside the platforms. It's much appreciated, and I love to uh, hear that people are actually engaging and listening and thinking. Uh, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Plus one, thank you so much for all of the positive comments. It's amazing. And also a shout out to everybody who's done research on these things. We always want to cite. Uh, of course, a lot of this would not be possible without your research and writing work, which also includes you, Ruth. Okay, cool. So if that's that, that's that. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye.